Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. I have a great surprise for you today. I'll explain how you can get a free bottle of the most advanced and effective digestive enzyme available. It's awesome. It transforms your digestion. As you know, I'm a fan of Bioptimizers, one of the few supplement companies who has the best formulations, uses the highest quality ingredients, and their products work. I take their probiotic every day. I love their magnesium replacement product. And I asked them if we could organize a great deal for our listeners, and they, well, they over-delivered. Right now, you can get a bottle of Masszymes for free. All you need to do is pay the small shipping fee, and there is no catch, no tricks, no forced continuity, nothing to cancel. That's right. The boys at Bioptimizers are giving away a free bottle. They're so confident. They're offering a 365-day money-back guarantee. If, say, you decide to purchase the full-size product in the future, you just have to cover that small shipping fee. I suggest you head to their site, grab your bottle before they either run out or take down the offer. It's Masszymes, M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S.com slash Drew Free. Masszymes forward slash D-R-E-W-F-R-E-E, all one word. Again, masszymes, M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com slash Drew Free. You will automatically get access to your unique coupon code to claim your free bottle. Limit is one per household. The offer is only available on this special page, so make sure to only visit this link to get access to this phenomenal offer. Again, M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com forward slash Drew Free. Offer valid while supplies last. Hey, Adam Carolla fans, are you aware that the Adam Carolla Show has created its very own smart speaker daily flash brief? That's right. You can get the Adam Carolla Show daily brief sponsored by NetSuites by Oracle on your Amazon and Google devices. It's very easy to find. On your Google Home device, just say, hey, Google, play the Adam Carolla Show daily brief. And your Amazon Alexa device, just go to skills and games in the menu of your Amazon Alexa app and add the Adam Carolla Show daily brief. Then you guessed it, just say, hey, Alexa, play the Adam Carolla Show Daily Brief. Once you're all set up, you can get hilarious daily clips from the Ace Man, all brought to you by our great partners, NetSuite. There's enough uncertainty to go around, and NetSuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control. At NetSuite by Oracle, they give you a full picture of your business in real time. Receive your free guide right now at netsuite.com slash Adam. That is netsuite.com slash Adam. Hey everybody, welcome to Dr. Who Podcast. Uh, check everything out at drdrew.com. We got a stream there every day. We keep everybody updated on the corona material. And uh, we have a call-in once a week, Ask Dr. Drew, and of course the other call-in, which is me with Tom Segura and Christina P. at After Dark. And keep wind in the sail of the Corolla ship, please. Uh, it, it lets us keep doing these things and we appreciate it very much. Uh, now we're going out to Dr. Thomas Yadigar. He is a critical care specialist and a pulmonologist. He's one of the first physicians I spoke to who I, I was hearing a lot about cytokine storm, but it was all very vague. And uh, Dr. Yadigar made it more vivid for me exactly what we're talking about. And he, he developed really uh, novel improvisational therapeutics that were saving lives. And so I want to talk to him. I want to talk to him more and uh, on every possible platform. So, Thomas, here we are. Hi, good afternoon, Dr. Drew. Thank you for having me again. So bring us up to date with what's happening now in the your treatments of the cytokine storm of coronavirus. Um, you know, pretty much much of the same. Uh, but uh, this this virus is so tricky. Everything, every time you think that you've got it figured out, it throws you a curveball. Um, last night, I went to the ICU. There was uh, two patients that got admitted. Uh, one was a 42-year-old female. The other one was an 80-year-old male. Um, Looking at all their numbers, everything looked like they were both kind of in cytokine storm, and um, they were both pretty hypoxic. They needed uh, a lot of oxygen, and uh, but when I went into the room, it was very obvious that there was two different processes going on. Uh, for the gentleman that was older, um, you know, I had seen that picture before. This was a person who had a viral illness, and uh, their COPD and their congestive heart failure had gotten exacerbated. Um, they may have a, had a pneumonia on top of it that just wasn't showing up yet um, versus the younger patient was, you know, in the early stages of cytokine storm. Mm. So, so here's, here's what I need from you. So I have signed up for the uh, California and New York health Corps, and New York has called and I did an interview where they were asking me about the things that, you know, the practices I have done over the years. And um, I didn't realize <laughs> 
that uh, we were trained uh, extensively in intensive care medicine back when I was in training. Uh, and so central lines, swans, A-lines, intubations, critical care, pressors, all that stuff. I lived in the ICU doing that stuff for 15 years. Um, and that is stuff that they need in New York. So I'm going to go to the front lines. Now, my que- if they'll call me, I- I'm waiting for the call. So, But I need from you now to talk to me about what I do to apply the kind of, for those of you that are listening, I apologize. We're going to get to the weeds, but I think it'll be interesting for you all to hear how this all works. What kinds of testing do I need to do to detect these cytokine storms? What kinds of improvisation should I be thinking about in terms of therapeutics? Let's say I go to a hospital out in Queens and they're not doing any of this. And I'm bringing it. I'm bringing the Thomas Yadigar approach to that hospital. What what are the what are the basic principles with which I should approach this? Well, I think the first thing that I would say is that you have to treat every patient in front of you as an individual patient. Uh, don't think that I'm you with can... that. But I need those. I need those inflammatory markers. What am I testing? Sure. The uh, inflammatory markers that you're testing for is the ferritin, is CRP, D dimer. Uh, the other thing that's important for ferritin is an iron level. There's okay. a lot of times when patients have iron deficiency with or without anemia, right. and the ferritin may be falsely low. And what I say, what I use is the ferritin is kind of the hallmark. If the ferritin is above 500, um, and you know the other markers are also elevated, then you need to think about cytokine storm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ferritin, goes, ferritin goes up in cytokine storm. Ferritin goes up and, 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 and if you are anemic with depleted ferritin, let's say, with the, it, well, ferritin, I'm forgetting what ferritin does anemic. I don't use it as a marker anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't either. This is uh, something new for me in my 20 years. But ferritin is essentially used for iron storage. So okay. if your iron levels are low, then your ferritin will also be low. Okay. So, and, and you don't necessarily have so, to have anemia. So does that, does that 500 get adjusted down in the setting of anemia? Yes, that's what. That's exactly the point. Uh, and, and it, doesn't have to be a setting of anemia. The very first patient I had, iron deficient. Uh, yeah, it was just iron deficient. And if you're going to uh, certain areas in New York, you may encounter a lot of uh, patients with IV drug abuse. And this is commonly seen with them is where they're iron deficient. They won't necessarily have the anemia associated with it. And those patients, when you check their ferritin, it's actually normal or low. So, and that, should, that shouldn't get you to you know, preclude, uh, you know, think that, okay, this can't be cytokine storm. So ferritin, D-dimer, CRP. Sed rate, anything else? And- um, LDH level is kind of helpful. That's usually elevated as well. Um, you know, obviously for, you can, if you can get an IL-6 level, that would be hugely important in our, in our hospital. Um, it takes about six days for an ILC uh, uh, interleukin-6 level to come back, which is not helpful when you're dealing with a critical care patient. And so just for people, again, that, that we're talking about are called cytokines, which are inflammatory, potentially proteins that uh, your body uses to mediate inflammation. And inflammation is something that use, they, we, we use to fight certain things, but inflammation can become a problem. So let, let's talk a little bit about the, the kind of person that gets these cytokine storms. Um, do they necessarily already have to have some sort of inflammatory process underway? And, and again, that's a vague idea. Uh, for instance, I, I always hear people talk about We've got to get rid of uh, central obesity because that adipose in the central of the body is inflammatory. And lo and behold, I'm looking at a lot of these patients that get cytokine storm and they're obese. Is that, is that a mediator of this? It, it very well may be. Um, you know, I, I obviously haven't seen hundreds and hundreds of patients to be able to tell you. And, um, you know, we haven't been able to do the case studies, but I think obesity probably definitely does play a role. Um, as does maybe some of the other, you know, risk factors in terms of diabetes, maybe uh, coronary disease. Um, there's always been, you know, um, things in the study in terms of coronary disease, maybe being an inflammatory condition and right. causing plaque um, that forms in the patient's uh, blood vessels. And so IL-6, interleukin-6, is sort of a, a central mediator of inflammation. And we have blockers, you know, all those, the TV ads you guys see on TV about, uh, you know, rheumatoid, all those psoriasis commercials and all those things tend, tend to have these kinds of mediators within them. And it's rheumatological. This is the disease of diseases of rheumatology. And I understand you consulted with a rheumatologist to help deploy some of these medications. What, what have they taught you? Um, I had to because these were not medications that I was using in the past 20 years. And essentially, they told me that it is pretty safe, that there are, there are side effects in terms of suppressing the body's immune system, but also suppressing the white cell count 
uh, the hemoglobin, the platelet count. Um, you know, you do need to check patients' liver functions and monitor their liver enzymes. In a lot of the COVID patients, their liver enzymes are slightly elevated, not to the point that it would preclude you or stop you from using these medications, uh, but you do need to check and make sure that, you know, that's not a case. What is the the process going on? To, if you can do it, if we can describe it in a way that, that people can understand. I mean, we have this inflammation in the lung, the ARDS, which is, my understanding is sort of a dry ARDS, which I, I don't quite understand what that is because ARDS in my world always included fluid leaking into the lungs. Uh, but And also no problems with lung compliance for the most part, yet no ability to oxygenate. Something going on with the ability to deliver oxygen. People have these theories about it being like an altitude sickness or something, yet we don't really have that going on. And then there's this inflammatory cascade, and you just said liver enzymes up. I know kidney failure is a prominent component of this. Can, can you tie all that together in some way? Well, I mean, the, the only way it kind of makes sense is that uh, the virus comes along, and uh, not for every patient, but for a small minority, it triggers the body's immune system. And it's then really your immune system, which is unique to every single person that gets activated. It also probably depends on how badly it gets activated. You know, if it gets activated to a factor of four, it's one disease process. If it's at a factor of 400, it's probably a different disease process. Uh, one of the other common things is also coagulopathy. There's a lot of patients that get yeah. blood. Yeah, I was going to ask you about. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So, the blood clotting is another feature of this, and you know, it's interesting. I've got I'm, I'm uh, since I you and I first spoke, I've got a, a whole cohort of COVID cases now. And um, one I'm watching very carefully at the moment is on Eliquis, or he's on, uh, I guess it's Eliquis he's on. He's on, he's on a blood thinner. And, uh, and he has a lupus anticoagulant, which is why he's on the Eliquis, and atrial fibrillation, which is, again, two indications for these blood thinners, wow. sort of. Um, and I'm just wondering how, you know, how this immune activation, he might be protected. But then again, he might be more disposed. It's really hard to figure this out. Yeah, I mean, it seems like from talking to a lot of my peers, um, it, it actually makes it worse. So they form more blood clots. With anticoagulants, uh, all anticoagulants? Uh, even on anticoagulants. I've had some patients that they've had to put them on uh, you know, full-dose IV heparin. Um, otherwise, they clot all their lines. Um, it's, it, it can be that severe. So it's not just an ICU situation where people are developing le- clots in their legs. This is some generalized clotting problem. Yeah, I think the inflammation probably for that subset of patients increases uh, their coagulation profile and mm-hmm. leads to a lot of blood clots. Can, can we, again, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm being unfair in all these questions, but I'm, I'm tr- you're, you're to me the, the, the source I want to mine for all this. And, and, and you know, when I get out there, uh, I want to have this sort of as clear as possible in my head. Can we think, I can't think of a single genetic hit that a virus could turn on or disrupt, let's say, that fits all this. Can you? No, right? No, there's. it doesn't make sense, you know, and that's the whole thing is I don't understand how one particular virus, even if it is from a bat species or some other species, how it can cause so many different varieties of disease uh, profiles. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, yeah, and, and that, that's the part I'm struggling with. It, I mean, it's not like they're completely different patient to patient. They're just different enough <laughs> that it makes it baffling, right? So yeah, exactly. like, um, uh, like you said, like for the ARDS, you know, yeah. this common disease. Yeah. That we, and there's many different things that can lead to ARDS. The patient can have, you know, uh, a sepsis and septic shock. They can have aspiration events. Uh, we saw it commonly 10 years ago with the H1N1, the, the swine flu outbreak. Um, but that's a you know, if you go through between patients, it's pretty much the same process. You know, the lungs do fill up with fluid. There's a lot of capillary uh, leak, and it's hard to oxygenate those patients. It's hard to ventilate their patients. The compliance changes. And over time, you have this organ, which is the lung, which is supposed to be spongy and compliant, and it essentially turns into the liver. It gets so congested. Um, but when you go from room to room to room, it's the same process at different stages of the same process. In these patients, it, there's no rhyme or reason to any of it. You know, some patients can have a mixture of, of that and something else. Some patients only have compliance issues and their lungs are totally compliant, but they're very, very, very hypoxic and they have very low oxygen states. So it, it, it's just a lot of, you know, it's throw everything in, in the book of medicine together, you know, put it in the cookbook 
and just grab a couple of pages and that's what it is. It just seems like it's a, it could be anything and everything. Yeah, it's a mishmash. And, and then the, the weirder thing is why only some patients going down these crazy paths, you know, and the rest just having the flu essentially or bad flu. Yeah. So, okay. I think my, my advice to you is if you get, you know, I mean, hopefully, you know, I think you're brilliant. You, you, would, do, you would do great to, to be in New York on the front lines. You, I'm sure you would save a lot of people. Um, but the first thing is you have to think about this disorder. So to think about it, then you have to order those serum markers. Yes. In addition to those markers, you have to also order the other ones that we routinely check. So you have to check their white cell count. You have to check their lactic acid. You have to check their procalcitonin levels um, just to make sure that there isn't another process that's going on. And then once you've ordered these tests and it's come back, then you have to go through the patient, uh, talk to the patient, examine the patient, look through their x-rays, look through all the labs, and then try to put the f- picture together. Is this a cytokine storm or is this someone that has a bacterial pneumonia on top of it or someone that has appendicitis on top of their COVID? I mean, there's so many different things that can be happening. So so I grew up in the time of uh, heavy hemodynamic monitoring, all kinds of data, all kinds of data. Is there any purpose for that these days or in this illness? I mean, can, you know, AV shunting or cardiac output or stroke volume work or, you know, pulmonary pressures. Is there anything we can get out of those sort of sort of data or is it just clinical at this point? Um, you know, I, I actually trained when I trained in the late 90s. That's when, you know, the, we did a lot of uh, PA catheters and, and, and this was central to all of what we did. Yep. Um, but that kind of died out 20 years ago when we found out that, no, it really for the majority of patients is not necessary. Um, no, I, I don't think that in this case, in this subset, it's really helpful. Um, there may be some patients with renal failure where it may be nice to know what their volume status is, um, in which case you can probably get by with a CVP. You don't need to get a PA catheter. And uh, I, just, it, it just, I just wonder, it, part of my, you know, again, just falling back on my training, I wonder what's going off in the periphery, whether there's peripheral shunting. And what I'm talking about for the listeners is when people get really, really sick, some precapillary muscles open up and you literally bypass your tissue uh, and, and you can just sort of, de- you don't oxygenate in the periphery because these little shunts have opened up that bypass the, ox- the arteries way out in the periphery, let's say. Um, so I wonder about that and if we could do anything about that hemodynamically. And then I, I wonder uh, about the sort of oxygen utilization and delivery. And, and let me ask you this question is, is there anything about the way we're delivering oxygen or anything about hemoglobin oxygen binding? Do, do you postulate anything in that zone? Uh, there has been, there has been some uh, studies that have shown that maybe there's an uncoupling of the oxygen and the hemoglobin and uh, that there may be some, you know, radicals that kind of uh, form the bond and kick off the, the hemoglobin mm-hmm. and uh, interfere with the oxygen carrying capacity. Um, personally, I think there's also a lot of, um, microthrombi that are forming in the capillaries. And if you look at the CAT scans, there's a lot of peripheral ground glass opacifications. And, you know, I think that may be some of what's happening in the lungs. And, uh, it also explains why the D-dimer may be elevated in those patients. So, wait, so what do you think is happening in the lungs? Let's specify uh, that. Well, I think that in the capillaries, in the end capillaries, that there's probably a lot of little small clots, microthrombi that are forming. Oh, in the lungs. In the, yeah. in the parenchyma, in the, in the tissue. Yeah. In the lungs. It could be also in the kidneys, um, you know, in the organs that are being affected. And that's and maybe... And that gets worse with anticoagulants. That's so That's almost like a DIC. Or is any of that stuff activated? Uh, no, it doesn't seem to be, uh, at least in the patients that I've seen, I haven't seen any uh, DIC activated. Um, hmm. But like I said, I, I, wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't put anything beyond this disease. I, I, anything is possible. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to the cytokine storm. So t- tell me about uh, deploying an IL-6 inhibitor and when I should consider even some of the other ones, IL-2, GAAK, something else. What, where, what do I do? How do I make those kinds of judgments? What, what kind of cases will get the IL-2 inhibitor? IL-6, rather, I'm sorry. So the ones that we look at are obviously, first, we make sure that there isn't any other disease process that's contributing to the patient's um, you know, hypoxia and, and, and lack of oxygen. And then we try to track uh, the CRP. That's the one that's kind of useful in terms of letting know. And the CRP is a marker of IL-6. Since we can't how, high, how high does it need to go? Um, it, it really varies by patients. And we don't, we don't, there isn't a trigger point. I mean, it's really a combination of what's happening in their markers and more importantly, what's happening to them clinically. Got it. Uh, 
initially, initially our, our, our red light was a oxygen requirement more than six liters. Uh, but we found that that was actually too high. And by the time we were getting them the medication, it was too late. So now we've dropped it to anyone needing more than four liters of oxygen. That's a, that's a red light and that triggers an automatic call from the nurses. And we evaluate the patient to make sure still that there isn't something else that's happening. Yeah. And if we rule out other causes, such as, you know, uh, failure or blood clot or pneumonia, um, then we, then we, uh, then we transfer the patient down to the intensive care unit. At this point, we've already kind of had the, you know, alarm bells ringing. So we've already got the consent. We've already talked to the patient about the IL-6. Fortunately, uh, you know, they've agreed to it. And then at that point, once they start needing more and more oxygen, once they get beyond five, six liters, then we, then we give the medication. And, and you're finding that to be useful, that that turns them around. I mean, since we, before we instituted this, we had uh, four patients that went through this and got, all of them got put on a ventilator. Um, since we've done this, uh, we have not had a patient go on a ventilator. And uh, the other thing that we're doing is initially, there was a lot of uh, noise in the literature of not to put these patients on high flow oxygen or on non-invasive ventilation as that would cause increased aerosolization. And that would cause to more healthcare workers, more nurses getting uh, infected. Uh, we've backed out from that because what we found is, you know, if you can avoid them going on a ventilator, uh, then you've done a lot of uh, a lot of good work. Right. So the ventilator becomes part of the problem, part of the solution, and then becomes also part of the problem. Yes, I believe the positive pressure probably you know stimulates the you know inflammation and makes it worse. And it also do, do any other kinds of positive pressure before uh, endogenous tube. Um, you know, the, the main thing has been the hypoxemia. So fortunately we've been able to get by with high flow oxygen with the, what's called the vapor therm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are done and we can get up, up to a hundred percent oxygen through a nasal cannula. Oh, so you don't use those old non-rebreathing masks. We, we were using those before to try to minimize the aerosolization, but uh, now, you know, we're, we're putting the patients in negative airflow rooms or putting a HIPAA filter in them, in those rooms and, uh, trying to use the vapor therm. And how many do you think you've turned around and kept off ventilators so far? Um, at least in the past few weeks, there's been about five or six patients that we've been able to turn around. And if the do you if the IL six doesn't seem to be doing the trick, the IL six inhibitor, when do you deploy other cytokine blockers, and what do you choose? You know, the other thing that we use and it, it's uh, approved for an acute lung injury is uh, solumedrol steroids, methylpednisol. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, like I said, I have a little cohort now and uh, steroids have really helped. <laughs> They've helped people, especially early. I was sort of surprised. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, if it's really bad enough, we'll actually give them both together. We'll give the IL-6 and, uh, and the steroids, or sometimes we'll wait 24 hours and see, um, see what happens. Once you give the IL-6 inhibitor, the CRP will come down. Um, that's usually what happens with it. Um, if it stays normal, if it stays high or it goes higher, then that's an indication that okay, you're not, and the patient's clinically getting worse, then that's an indication that they need more medication. I don't have a lot of the other um, inhibitors available, so I don't have the you know JAK inhibitors or the IL-1. Uh-huh. Uh, we're kind of limited to what we have, and a lot of other hospitals don't even have that available, which makes it even more complicated. Uh-huh. And did the rheumatologist give you any hint on when you would deploy those or how you would deploy those other two, if you could get them? Uh, yeah, the you know my friend uh, the rheumatologist told me to stay away from the IL one and the IL six. That's probably the same path. And if you had to use the, use the jack inhibitor with the IL six, um, I've also had to use Cellcept on a few patients where you know they were on a vent and I wasn't able to turn them around, and yeah. that's kind of worked a little bit. You know the the prednisone. It's kind of interesting. I mean, it's kind of isn't it? In, because I've, I've used a bit of steroid early to good effect in people that got very sick. Um, and it kind of makes sense that this is all an inflammatory process. I and mean, we steroids is our old fashioned sledgehammer. What, what kind of doses do you use? Um, we use a 40 milligrams IV of the methylprednisolone twice a day, key 12 oh, hours. So, you know, milligram per kilogram per day kind of thing ish. Yeah. yeah it's not, not super high doses. I mean, usually for like something like COPD exacerbation, we use 60 right. milligrams every six hours. So it's, it's a little bit less. Initially, again, a lot of reports from Italy, from China was don't use steroids at all, um, especially early in the disease because it can increase the viral replication and uh, viral shedding. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, uh, but I think it, this is a later, later in the disease course. This is usually like 
seven to 10 days after symptoms have, produced, have, have come about. Um, that's when usually you're dealing with the cytokine storm. So I think at that point, it's, it's probably safe to use. And then what about antivirals? Are you doing any remdesivir or anything of that sort? We tried. We tried to get on the trials for remdesivir. We, we were not successful. Um, we used uh, antiretrovirals initially, and um, that was like uh, the old uh, what do you call it? The old that old drug. <laughs> What's it called? I'm blanking. I did research on it back on hepatitis C way back. Uh, um, no, it was the one that we used for HIV medication. Which one? Yeah, and then, then, then there was an article that came out in the New England Journal that said that it doesn't work. So you know, we only used it on one or two patients early on in, in the disease, and it, it didn't really seem to have any kind of effect. Which medicine do you like? A, like an HIV medication? Yeah, it was a combination of uh, HIV medication. I, I saw another study on this old medicine. What's it called? We used to use it in hepatitis C in combination with other stuff. Ribavirin is that what it's called? Is that is that stuff? That sounds familiar. I, I have not used that. Well, let me look it up while, while I ask you another question, which is a, a big one. Where does hydroxychloroquine uh, figure into this? Well, in our, uh, in our health system, uh, that's allowed to use. So if once the patient uh, is tested positive for COVID, uh, for SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, we start the hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin for a five-day course. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not sure how much, how effective it is. Maybe for the minor cases, maybe for the mild cases, it may help and, and kind of alleviate it. Yeah. Um, but I think if you have a full full on cytokine storm that's heading your way, it's probably not enough of a immunosuppressant to help. Yeah. That's sort of been my impression that, that it, some people really turn around with it and others seem just kind of helped, but if it's progressing rapidly, not so much ribavirin, that was the medicine I was talking about. Yeah. That I saw, I saw a brief study on the use of that was sort of, you know, not clear. Uh, but that, that is, if I remember, it has some antiretroviral activity, certainly anti-RNA virus stuff. So uh, interesting. I, mean, I think all of us are, you know, dying for some of these studies to get done so we can see what works, what doesn't work. It's, yeah. Uh, it's I mean, it's crazy going blind like this, isn't it? Yeah, it's very difficult to to not have any guidance and uh, to to have a sick dying patient in front of you, and uh, you're struggling to 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 heal them. And, and yet, you've had great great success. I mean, that's why I'm that's why you're here. That's why I'm mining you for information because something you're doing is working. And I understand you don't have a giant series, but clearly things change direction as you changed your concept of what this illness is. You start, it seems like you stopped thinking about the pneumonia and the virus and more about the cytokine storm. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. Um, you know, I, I thought that by, in, by lo really looking at the cytokine storm, by trying to treat it early aggressively, that's probably where we're going to make the most difference. Uh, the patients that come in with a horrible pneumonia from the, you know, from the virus and have other complications, Obviously, we still treat them aggressively, and we try to turn the things around. Yeah. Um, this this subset of population seemed like that was the one where we could really make the most difference. Did you notice that we are? You know, I read the literature. I you know, there's tons of literature pouring in about this, right? I mean, the whole world's attention is on it. And the New England Journal puts out two you know publications a week now. Jam is putting out. It's just filled with stuff. But I've noticed particularly in the New England Journal an awful lot of collaborative material coming out of China, which I find curious that it took till now to get stuff out. Do you have any insight into that at all? Or am I, or am I just, does it just take a while? Did the, was the government censoring some of the, you know, the physician to physician kind of collaboration? Do we, do we know anything about that? I, I, I don't, but I'm not sure how much of it I trust, to be honest with you. Um, you know, one of the two things that I, I didn't believe when initially came out was one, that this virus was, you know, slightly more um, uh, infectious than the influenza virus. That, as fast as it was spreading, and as many people were getting involved, you know, it didn't seem that that was slightly more. I've been taking care of, you know, patients with, you know, influenza for over 20 years. I've never really worried about getting it, getting it from a patient. Every time that I've contracted it, it's always been from my one of my family members, usually one of my children. Um, so it didn't make sense that it was sli slightly more. You know, the R naught that they talk about was, you know, for every person that gets it, they give it to two or two and a half persons. And, you know, early when I started talking to the patients, my first few patients, that didn't seem to be the case. It seemed like it was at least double what they were saying. 
And I think nowadays we're starting to learn that, yeah, the R0 is probably somewhere between four to six. So, so um, R0 is just how, how, mu- how many people one person infect, essentially. Exactly. And, they, and then you have these people who are super infectors who can infect 20, 30 people. Um, but I think, I think that's where a lot of this extreme stuff is coming from. I, I think super infectors and, and vectors. Uh, I, again, I think that the, the physical plant of New York City is, is just ripe for this kind of thing. And it's not all that different from Wuhan. And apparently, I'm learning, Spain and Italy have a, a fair share of the similar kinds of small elevators in small halls, con- people concentrated in large environments, small environments, rather. So I, I think the physical environment really needs to be kind of dealt with going forward in a, in a weird way. I don't know how we do that, but certainly masks are one of the ways for the, for the moment. Um, are you able to get adequate protective gear? We have. We've actually been very fortunate. Um, the one area that's short is probably the, the masks the, for the pappers, for the cappers. Um, but we are recite, we're, we're reusing those. Um, that was the one area that was kind of uh, short, but we've had the N95 masks. We have every everything else that we need for PPE, and uh, we just kind of reuse our our, our face shields for for the cappers and the pappers, and uh, we haven't had any issues. And are you doing like twelve hour shifts in the in the various intensive care units, or how do you guys operate? Um, it, it, at this point, it's you know you're there till you, you you take care of your patients, and you know last night for those two patients, I I, I had gotten home, I had dinner, we we're supposed to have you know family night. And movie night, but you know, I had to go back to see those two patients. So, um, you know, these are extraordinary um, times, and you know, the the normal doesn't fit into this. And oh, I know, I get know, it. Working, you know, there isn't any. If I have to work, you know, this will be my second weekend that I'm working in a row. Um, and everyone just helps out. Everyone just does as much as they can, and we try we try to take as much breaks as possible so that you know we're not exhausted. And again. And that's necessary because you, you, your mind needs to be clear. You need yeah. to be the best game to, to, to treat these patients. So and now you and I both know that the ICU nurse is like having a great medical student standing there. I mean, they're just it's sensational. Uh, and they've had to, I'm sure, adapt their sensibilities to these patients too. I mean, their learning curve must be quite steep. Uh, are there things they're doing now that they wouldn't normally be doing in an ICU? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Drew. So one of the things that they came up with, and this was ingenious, um, is they brought out the IV poles from the rooms. So they put in the longer uh, lines and uh, they brought out the IV. So the IV poles are actually outside the rooms. Wow. And um, they don't need to go back in to adjust medications, to hang medications. Um, That one conserves, you know, PPE. But then two also makes it easier on them because, you know, to, to put it on, to, to don and dove takes so much time and energy. Um, so that was one of the ingenious things that they came up with, and I fully supported it. Um, I learned very early on in my career that you need to be on very good terms with the, with the ICU nurses. They're, they're all very, very, very smart. And uh, I work as a, you know, I'm, I'm one member of a team. No one's any more important. Right. Uh, the therapist, the physical therapist, the occupational therapist, the nurses, respiratory therapist. Yeah, they can call me on my cell phone. They, if they have ideas, if they, you know, I want to hear everyone's uh, viewpoints. And yeah. uh, yes, at the end of the day, you know, I, I have to make the decisions as a physician, but I try to incorporate a very team approach into uh, patient care. Which is a, a great way because they are when you empower that team, those guys, they have so much to offer. <laughs> they, their judgments are exquisite many times. For sure, for sure, and they also they're they're there with the patients, you know, every minute of the day for twelve hours. Uh, and we may not be, I may be seeing other patients and not see everything. So they're they're my eyes, they're my ears, and in many instances, they're also my brain. Sometimes are, are people ending up on pressers, and is that happening early, late at all? That really hasn't been a huge huge part of it. Um, the ones that are, I think, may be from uh, the sedation. Uh, initially with the sedation that was causing a lot of problems. We were running out of medications because these patients were propofol. Yeah. So, the, you know, they were on it for, you know, weeks and weeks and we had to kind of uh, change our, pat- our, uh, our ordering pattern. So now we're using some other medications like ketamine, uh, Ativan. We've kind of gone back a little bit. Um, but the main thing is if you can try to get them not to go on a ventilator, then that's, that's where you really save lives. 
when they when they wake up, these versed also. So versed, adamine, ketamine, all that stuff. Whatever you can get your hands on, right? Whatever. Yeah, exactly. So whatever when they wake up, when they patients. So, so what we're talking about is that when these patients go on a ventilator, we put them to sleep essentially. Um, we didn't used to do that, by the way. We we used to do it. We used to do that. It was considered improper because it would it would block their neurological uh, status. We couldn't follow what was going on, uh, and then we would put them on this stuff only when they were bucking the ventilator and it was affecting lung compliance, that kind of thing. Then we sort of went, that's cool. <laughs> we need to put everybody on these things all the time, which is now what we do. Is that though causing problem? Are you getting bed sores and DVTs and other things as a result of these prolonged sedations? We haven't. Um, sometimes when they come out there, you know, they have a little bit of confusion, a little bit of delirium, and we've had to use some other medications like Seroquel to kind of, uh, you know, to, to temper that. Yeah. But uh, no, we haven't had any uh, any any problems with them being on a ventilator. Uh, we haven't developed any ventilator associated pneumonias. Um, but again, I think you know we've been also fortunate. One, the patients that are presenting to our hospital are presenting at an earlier stage. When I talk to some of my colleagues in other hospitals, um, a lot of the patients that are coming to their ICU are getting intubated in the emergency room and coming to them. Um, that hasn't been the case in ours. Uh, most of our patients that have come to the ICU were on our floor. So we had some time to figure out what was going on with them. If they were inside a kind of storm, we had some time to try to get on top of it. Uh, one of the other things that we've done is also we've instituted prone therapy. And this isn't just for patients on a ventilator. This is where instead of being on your back in bed, you're laying on your stomach in, 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 uh, in bed. And uh, we started doing that for anyone who's on oxygen, anyone who's on more than two liters of oxygen on the floor. Um, and again, this is all to try to prevent the progression and the need for um, ventilator. Yeah, I, we used to do that with ARDS back in the day because uh, of the way the flu, but this is not that. So I had trouble understanding what, what's happening. Do you know? Uh, the only way I can uh, you know, guess what it is is that by maybe changing the physiology, you're maybe decreasing the inflammation that's happening or at least, slowing, at least slowing down the inflammation. I see. Um, that makes sense. Now, have you made any note of the racial disparities and socioeconomic disparities that we're starting to hear about in the press? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the patients that we're seeing that are younger are Hispanic. Um, they tend to be the ones that are actually coming in a little bit sicker. Um, and I think it probably has to do, one, with the fact that, you know, there may be you know, living in a small space with a lot of different people. A lot of uh, a lot of people, and and then two, I think you know they probably tend to go to doctors later in the stages of their disease, right? Stay home, or sometimes go to their local clinic and uh, get treated with vitamins and those types of things. So, you know, the one thing I would say is, you know, people initially we were telling people to stay home, stay home, stay home, but I think at this point, you know, you really need to get evaluated, and uh, if you've been having symptoms more than five days. You need to be evaluated for, you know, the cytokine storm, especially if you're having shortness of breath and ongoing fevers. And, and is it accurate to say that the longer you're sick, the lot more likely you are to get into one of these storm situations? So it comes later, right? Exactly, exactly. So what I tell my patients is usually if it's within the first five days, that's probably just a virus, you know, and the, and the COVID-19 disease. Uh, once you get beyond that, that's when you start getting into the, uh, the danger area. And uh, anywhere from like day seven up to day 14, um, you could have it. And it could be really rapid. We could be really slow and, you know, slowly developing over many days, or it can develop rapidly over, you know, 24, 48 hours. And, and is the primary symptom hypoxemia, low, low oxygen in the blood, or is there also fever, that kind of thing? No, it seems like a lot of shortness of breath is a big part. Um, you know, the chest tightness and hurting, uh, you know, the, the patients say that it hurts to breathe. Um, the hypoxemia does come, but it comes at a later stage of this of the storm. Uh, usually, when that's there, that means that you know it could really progress very rapidly uh, from there on. And uh, you know, since it's an inflammatory condition, they can have fever as well. So it's not unusual I to have. Wonder if there's some sort of cross reactivity between the alveolar inflammation, maybe, and an immune, some immune something, something about the immune system that gets hyperactivated. It's kind of interesting. Uh, and is there anything clinically you've noticed about the people that have a propensity? The other we talked earlier about obesity. Is there anything else that you know, when somebody comes in, you go, uh-oh, this could get going? 
Um, usually the younger patients, uh, the younger patients seem to be more affected by this. And I, I'm talking about people in their forties and fifties. Um, it seems like the ones, the cases that I have seen have, uh, have occurred in the younger patient subset. Well, I, that's, I started worrying about uh, Chris Cuomo for that reason. I, I was looking at him, you know, he's looking still pretty sick. And I, I thought, God, somebody I hope is thinking about this, that you, what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, the virus itself is pretty bad. And it's, you know, if you get it and you're lucky and you only have the pneumonia and you don't have anything else, it's going to knock you down for at least a few weeks. So, but if you start having, you know, if you start, if you start feeling better and then you start feeling bad again, uh, and that was the second part that didn't make sense. Uh, you know, when it was coming out of China, that you can have a prodrome for, f- you know, five to 14 days. Yeah. That was a very unusual thing. I, I, I had never seen an upper respiratory virus that can have a prodrome that long. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then trigger a separate illness. Exactly, exactly. Sure. I think what's happening is, you know, when they get symptomatic in the first five, six, seven days, it's the virus. And then the second prodrome from day seven to day 14, that's probably the cytokine storm. That's mm. just not being picked up, not being diagnosed, not being treated. Again, that makes me want to use the Plaquenil semi-early, you know, after four or five days. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, for us, uh, as soon as they come in, as soon as they get positive, and now we, uh, we're, we actually have access to a rapid test where we get the results within, a, within an hour or two, which has really significantly helped. I had H1N1 and uh, it was horrible. I mean, it was, I was 50 years old at the time and that it routinely killed 40 to 60 year olds, right? I had right. pneumonia, I had everything and man, it hit me within six hours. I was septic. I mean, it was like ridiculous. It was crazy. And um, I went to the hospital. Was like, I, I'd been on an island in the Caribbean and there'd been a leptospirosis outbreak. And I and I went to the hospital going, this is this has got to be leptospirosis because this is crazy the toxicity I'm experiencing. And they're like, yeah, shut up, lie down, let's figure it out. And, uh, and um, it turned out to be H1N1, and I was able to go home. But I I would call my infectious disease consultant like every couple of days, going, this the toxicity is insane. This, this can't be right. You sure I'm supposed to feel like this? And and I think this is a similar virus. Yeah, so it's it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, as a as a intern in, in the ICU, I had the regular flu, and I was still able to work. Um, you know, I put a mask on. The nurses felt so bad for me; they put an IV, and I was you know walking around taking care of patients at LA. Oh, Where were you? What hospital? It set the whole stage for me. <laughs> and uh, ten years ago, uh, I was taking care of all these patients with H1N1. Yeah, they were in my age, younger. Uh, sick as can be, and and unfortunately, a lot of them were dying. Mm-hmm. And my set my, at that point, my my nineteen year old who was nine got it. And I was petrified. I stayed with them. I you know I slept with them, and nursed them and got them well. But unfortunately, then I got it. Uh. It was I was in bed for a week. There was a couple of nights when I woke up and I was just ready to get my shot of morphine and just check out. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it felt like. My lungs, my lungs felt like they're on fire. Uh, yeah. Every breath was, it took like all of my energy to, to take a breath. So I, I share your pain. It was, it was rough. I, yeah, I, 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 could not, I, I could not speak. I couldn't lift my head up. I, it just was ridiculous. I went for like two weeks like that. It's like, it's yeah, crazy. I think I was just in bed for a whole week. I, you yes. know. Yeah, so a reminder for everybody, flus stock. Get your flu shot. You know, we're all, uh, this was my point from the beginning. You're all paying careful attention to this virus, which is, has a greater R not, as we've said, and it's more nefarious in certain cases in terms of it triggering these other illnesses, these other conditions that we're trying to figure out. But uh, make no mistake, flu is horrible and you can be protected pretty well against it with a vaccine every year. So do not, don't, don't negate, neglect to take those vaccines. And that should be, I understand why we're not, including that in every conversation about coronavirus. Well, I was, I would hope that after this, you know, people understand the, the importance and the need for a vaccine and uh, that, that they shouldn't forgo it. Yeah. So, so one, another thing, uh, uh, Drew, that I wanted to talk, comment on is, you know, at this point we're starting to see a lot of patients coming into the ER where they have been so afraid of coming in and they were concerned that they were going to pick up COVID. Uh, now they're coming in two days after they've had their heart attack. Right, right. Coming in after they've had their stroke. Right. Um, you know, it's important for for all of the patients for our community to know that social isolation and medical isolation are not the same thing. If yeah. you 
are having a serious medical problem, you need to come to the hospital. Um, at this point, every single hospital has done its due diligence. And what we're doing is we're, we're kind of cohorting patients so that, you know, if you have COVID, you're in a separate area and you're not going to expose a whole bunch of other patients to, to this disease. Well, even if you have just a respiratory illness, they're going to keep you somewhere else. Yeah, so. ER will, if you come in with a respiratory illness, you'll be put in a separate area um, away from other patients. And, uh, you know, the fact of not coming in because you don't, you don't want to pick up COVID and, and, and staying home when you have a heart attack, when you're having a stroke, when you're having a, you know, a pneumonia, that's yeah. just not the right thing to do. Right. And then finally, any feelings you have about us tiptoeing back out into the world? Yeah, this is, uh, I think this is probably at the million dollar question, right? Right. Uh, I, think initially, I think initially last month, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, we were not prepared for this virus. This virus has been two to three steps ahead of us from the get-go. If we had a huge surge in, in patients in, in the initial stages, uh, it was taking me uh, seven days to get test results for ICU patients. Yeah, we were we would not have been able to take care of patients. I think at this point we've done a much better job. We're better equipped. We've been dealing with this uh, virus for you know over a month, so we understand things a little bit better. And you know, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's sustainable to tell everyone to stay home forever. I think yeah. we need to we need to be smart about it. We need to do it in segments. Um, we need to have better surveillance and better detection of patients and being able to pick up on it early and, and not let it get too, you know, get, get through the community. Yeah. I, I, by the way, LA County, you know, as we record this thing just started today, testing everybody. They, they've got a great website up. It's easy to use. You can make an appointment, go. If you have even suspicious symptoms or contact, just go. And I, I applaud LA County. I hope the rest of the state picks this up. I hope the rest of the country picks this up. Because it, it's the fact that we can do it is very encouraging. So I, I feel like today was a threshold day in us getting closer to being able to isolate and contain this thing. Well, uh, otherwise we're, we're in the dark, right? I mean, you need to know what percentage of the population has it. Um, there's also the IgG and IgM antibodies tests that have come out. I think there's three that are FDA approved at this point. That's so all. I'm reading the, the LA County just put out a blast on that saying, let me, let me read you what they said so people understand uh, what I'm talking about here, because this is actually kind of important. So give me one second. And while you're pulling that up, Drew, I'll just inform yep. the uh, listening audience. This is coming out on Wednesday, the 22nd of April, but the uh, recording, so the date that Drew referenced where uh, L.A. County made testing available is Thursday, April 16th. So right. uh, that's when we're recording this. So here's what they say. Serology tests are being far falsely marketed as FDA authorized or FDA approved. And as CLIA wavered point of uh, care tests, no serology tests are currently approved for use in point of care setting. Isn't that crazy? Wow. I, th I thought, yeah, that's confusing to me based on what I had heard. Um, but the point is, it's a, it's, a, it's a confusing mess out there in terms of the antibody test. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I, I don't think, tuned. I'm not sure it serves a lot of purpose in a hospital in an acute care setting. Right. Uh, but I think for epidemiology, for us to make these types of decisions of when hey. we open up, it's Kate. essential. It's essential. Yeah, it's without essential it, without it, yeah, without it, you're making a decision in the dark. And I don't know. Stanford apparently is doing a study in Northern and Southern California on uh, on selected populations to try to determine the level of immunogenicity amongst them. I don't know what antibody tests they're using though. They may they may be doing a lab test rather than a rapid test. And so false negatives are the big problem apparently with these rapid reagents. But stay tuned. More to be revealed on that. Tom, is there anything else you'd like to point out about your practice? You want to have anybody reach you if they're interested? Because they will. <laughs> you, you tell me. No, uh, thank you, Gerard. Yeah, I mean, the, the main reason for this, the, you know, I, I'm an intensely private person, but I felt that it was important to share um, my knowledge, what I've learned uh, with the general public and also with my you know, colleagues. I've reached out to a lot of uh, pulmonary critical care physicians in the area, and I'm just trying to collaborate, try to you know, go over what we've learned, what we do. Uh, what's best practice. And we're, like I said, again, we're all thirsty for the, the, the trials to come out so we can you know, have a better idea of what should be first line, what should be second line. Um, it's difficult to practice in the dark. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're all trying to do our best. When you have a sick, dying patient in front of you, you're going to try to do everything you can to save them. So it's Thomas Yadigar. He's a pulmonary medicine critical care specialist and uh, not doing any sleep medicine these days, I bet. So, uh, not doing much but, sleep or sleep medicine, <laughs> uh, 
But but I would say if somebody's in public health or in critical care and you'd like to reach out, I, I would think you'd want that. So is there some place you want people to go or any, any kind of collaborative source that you want people to look into, Tom? Um, you know, my office uh, is probably the best way. Um, right. So people that are motivated, look up, look up uh, Dr. Gadigar in Tarzana. And, uh, the, but I do think this collaborative effort amongst physicians has been critically important. And you're overseeing how many ICUs now? Uh, we're overseeing two different ICUs. Uh, we're overseeing uh, Providence Cedar sinai Tarzana Medical Center as well as West Hills uh, Medical Center. All right. Well, good luck. And let me know if there's any changes or new observations or insights or anything. And, and let's, you know, the, the collaborative effort of medicine has never been more uh, on its game, I would say. So uh, thank you yeah. for this. And thank thank, thank you. Thank you for getting in the weeds on this. I think it's just interesting for people to hear doctors talk about this. And, uh, you know, we try, as we try to figure it out, you know, the press talks about something called cytokine storm, but you never really get to understand what doctors are trying to do with this and what this thing is. Thank you, sir. And we'll talk soon. Of course. And you be safe. And uh, if you do get deployed to New York, please give me a call and, uh, you know, please uh, be safe and take care of yourself. I assure you I will. And uh, we'll see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.com.